Burner phones, a fake Uber account name. Documents reveal new details in the case against suspended Attorney General Ken Paxton, what we're learning about evidence that could be presented. Prisoners dying behind bars amid a Texas heat wave. Families push for changes, but the state says the deaths are not heat-related. We look closer at the data. Two-thirds of Americans do not want Donald Trump or Joe Biden to be our two nominees. Two-thirds of Americans want something different. We sit down with the only Texas Republican in the race for president. Why he thinks refusing to support Donald Trump helps his campaign for the GOP nomination. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Josh Hinkle. We're learning new details about evidence supporting allegations in the impeachment of suspended Attorney General Ken Paxton. On Thursday night, the Senate released nearly 3,800 pages of documents. Monica Madden looks at what's being revealed just weeks before Paxton's Senate trial. Shocking, egregious, and blatant. Those are some of the words former top attorney general aides used to describe conduct when Paxton allegedly used his office to help real estate investor Nate Paul. House managers dropping 4,000 pages worth of interviews, emails, and other records that they say support their case for impeachment. The, the House managers have clearly done their homework. In one interview, a former deputy attorney general says Paxton was literally obsessed with helping Paul, tying up already thinned resources. These are the most senior lawyers in the attorney general's office. Those are the kinds of warnings that you would expect a politician to heed. Former trial lawyer Mike Golden says prosecutors might have a compelling case. Pretty important as the state's chief law enforcement officer to avoid the appearance of impropriety. The documents also claim Paxton used his office to help Paul access a sealed FBI search warrant for Paul's properties. For the head of that agency, to take deliberate steps, assuming that it's true, right, assuming the allegations are true, to take deliberate steps to avoid the scrutiny of the public records law that his office is designed to enforce seems to be a, a particularly egregious use of, of his resources. Earlier, Paxton's legal team asked to dismiss all 20 impeachment articles, arguing the House did not have enough evidence and denying wrongdoing. Now senators have more to consider just two weeks before the trial. Monica Madden, State of Texas. We want to take a deeper dive into the recently released motions and evidence. Joining us for Insight is Zach Despart, the politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. Welcome. Hey, Josh. Paxton's attorneys had called for the charges to be dismissed. Does the evidence from House managers make the case for the trial to move forward that way? It's a great question. Yeah, the, the substance of much of Team Paxton's arguments have been all 20 articles should be dismissed uh, in part because they say the House has not presented evidence in support of the articles. Uh, in response to that motion, the House pretty much said, how much evidence do you want to see? They uh, published a, a series of exhibits. Uh, they published 4,000 pages of evidence on Thursday night. Um, pretty much laying out their entire case. It's a, an extraordinary amount of information to get pre-trial. Of course, we haven't even started the trial yet, but basically the House, by doing this, is, is daring senators, how could you possibly dismiss this case? This is all our evidence. Yeah, nearly 4,000 pages. What really stood out to you with all that? Uh, the broad strokes of the corruption allegations have been more or less the same since May when the House first impeached Attorney General Paxton. One of the things that stood out for a lot of readers was um, 
the House team's announcement through some of its exhibits that the Attorney General allegedly had used burner phones, temporary phones, to communicate with Nate Paul, uh, that they had jointly created a uh, Uber account under an alias that they could share together and that Paxton could use to hide the extramarital affair that he was in. Those kind of things kind of undercut the uh, Paxton team's argument of, you know, voters reelected the Attorney General in 2022 knowing all of these things, all of these allegations about him, yet the House is saying, wait a minute, he hid all of these things. We don't know about that yet. Um, how could you say that voters knew? Yeah, and House managers have claimed that Paxton used his influence to benefit real estate developer Nate Paul, who you mentioned, including getting him to access uh, him access to sealed federal documents. Have we seen evidence to back up that specific accusation? Uh, one of the really important exhibits that I reviewed today is uh, the the personal aide, the body man. Uh, to Attorney General Paxton has turned into one of the most important witnesses for the House in this trial. He's the one of the aides that spent the most time with Paxton. He was the one who was going to be able to witness all of these things. He has cooperated extensively with them. Uh, he talks about how uh, he delivered documents uh, to Paul on behalf of Paxton. The House thinks those documents included confidential FBI files into Paul's uh, criminal charges. So you've mentioned the burner phones, we've heard about the fake Uber accounts and Paxton's mistress. The accusations definitely don't put Paxton in a good light, but why is any of that really relevant when it comes to the Senate trial? Another great question. Yeah, uh, all of this evidence would certainly uh, make it very difficult for Paxton to win a criminal trial. This is not the kind of trial we're talking about. Uh, ultimately, senators get to decide uh, to use whatever metrics or use whatever things they want to use when they're deciding uh, whether to convict uh, the attorney general or, or not. Uh, one of the key things that's important to remember is the first day of the trial, the Senate gets to decide whether to dismiss the charges only requires a simple majority of senators to dismiss the charges. It requires a two-thirds majority to convict. So on those rounds, Paxton has the easier time. All right. Well, I appreciate you breaking it down for us all. Zach Despart from the Texas Tribune. Thank yeah. you very much. Glad to be here. You want someone who's not afraid of Donald Trump, but who's also articulating another vision for the future. A Texan aiming for the White House makes his case to voters, how he's trying to win over Republicans who want to move away from Donald Trump. Yes, Families call for action after prisoners die in hot Texas prisons. The state says the deaths are not heat related, but what does the data show? State records show at least 135 people have died in Texas prisons since June 1st. We reviewed hundreds of death reports to learn how and why younger prisoners are dying in the state's custody. The numbers are leading relatives to call for answers and change. Ryan Chandler digs deeper into the data. In the name of Jesus. That little boy taught me what unconditional love was all about. He taught me what passion was. He taught me what it was like to be a sovereign servant. Holding a candle to the governor's mansion, Tona Southern's Naranjo remembers the light of her life. You see, my son's still not been laid to rest. Joined with others in mourning. Yes, after their relatives died behind bars. A judge sentenced John Anthony to 20 years. The TDCJ, a stale unit, sentenced John Anthony to death. 
Southards is one of at least 135 people who have died inside TDCJ facilities since June 1st. Of those, at least 51 died suddenly in medical distress. Most of them found unresponsive in their cells. 11 died of cardiac arrest or heart failure, including a 23-year-old and four more people younger than 50. In 73% of these cases, the cause of death is still pending or unknown. Some of these may be drug-related deaths, and we have to at least acknowledge that possibility. But common sense tells us that when the heat is this extreme and you've got people without prior medical conditions dying, that young, dying in their cells, there may well be a connection. TDCJ has not reported a heat-related death in more than 10 years. Experts question that judgment. These are preventable deaths, and that's really the critical point. Prison should be one of the safest environments for someone because they are under the full control of, um, of the agency and the staff. They are supervised. So if people are dying and we don't know why they're dying, there's something very, very wrong with that. Under the shadow of the Capitol, families call for immediate action, fearful for when the sun rises on their relatives. It's too late for John Anthony Southards, but I'm gonna tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, I found a peace and a hope in God and a passion through the loss of my son that I'll never stop for. Ryan Chandler, State of Texas. TDCJ tells us the department does not determine causes of death. That's left to an independent medical examiner. The department emphasized that inmates and staff found in medical distress receive immediate care. He's the only Texan in the race for president, and his stand against Donald Trump is a big part of his campaign. I have won tough elections, and you don't win an election by kissing your opponents behind. Why refusing to back Trump could keep him out of next week's GOP debate. A new law aims to make Texas schools safer, how districts across the state are struggling to meet the requirements and searching for solutions. One week from tonight, the top Republican candidates for president are scheduled to meet face-to-face -face for a debate, but the only Texan in the race is still trying to earn a spot on the stage. Will Hurd represented Texas in Congress. Now he's mounting what he acknowledges is a long-shot campaign for the GOP nomination. Jennifer Sanders spoke with Hurd about his message to voters and his effort to make the debate. The first GOP debate, August 23rd, and we know that there are a lot of requirements to get on that stage, including mm -hmm. polling and campaign contributions. Will we see you on that stage August 23rd? I feel pretty confident that we're going to meet the requirements for polling and the individual uh, dollar donations. Um, a lot of folks have been uh, supportive of us and it's growing every single day. Uh, and also the question on the pledge. Uh, I've said that, you know, my issue is not that I'm gonna, so, uh, I won't support the Republican nominee. Mm -hmm. My issue is I won't support Donald Trump. Yeah. And, but guess what? Donald Trump has even said he's not gonna uh, sign the pledge and he's unlikely to show up to the debate because ultimately he doesn't wanna have to answer for why he lost in 2020, and he lost. It wasn't, the election was not stolen from him. It was lost. Um, why was he incapable of growing the party in, um, in, in 2020 also by us losing the Senate, and then how he prevented us from winning in 2022? So I feel good 
that that folks are going to be able to see me on on the debate stage. Okay, and going back to that, just to add some context here, that loyalty pledge, you're signing loyalty to support the eventual GOP nominee. And your stance, though, has been that you will not support Donald Trump. So will you not sign that pledge at all? Because that will keep you off of the debate stage. Sure. Ultimately, we need to hit the requirements mm -hmm. um, in order to get to that point. And mm -hmm. so once we do that, we'll engage with the RNC and, and see how the process evolves. Um, in my adult life, I've never signed a contract that I didn't have amendments to. Unfortunately, there's too many other people that are running for the, for the, for the president on the Republican side that are unwilling to challenge Donald Trump because they're afraid of him. Now, I'm not a political scientist, but I, I have won tough elections. Mm -hmm. And you don't win an election by kissing your opponents behind. So when you were in Congress, and shifting now to border security, mm -hmm. you were in Congress, you represented approximately 820 miles across the border. Mm -hmm. And so now you turn on the news any given day and you see what's happening there. It's not only impacting our state of Texas, but really states across mm -hmm. the country. What's your plan for sure. border security and really reforming our immigration system? Look, you're starting to see in, in Democratic towns and states what you've seen along our border, where you have elected officials that are frustrating with the current policies. This is a crisis at our southern border. It began under Donald Trump, and it got significantly worse under Joe Biden. The first thing we have to do is stop treating everybody as an asylum seeker. Asylum is real. People should be allowed to, uh, to apply for asylum. But when people abuse the asylum process, those that actually need it are the ones that are getting impacted. Um, two, we should treat the human smugglers and drug trafficking organizations as terrorist organizations. That means using all of our national intelligence resources against this problem, working with our partner nations in order to dismantle the infrastructure that is bringing in 5.5 million people that have come into our country illegally. But the, the, an important piece, we got to streamline legal immigration. Hmm. And at a time when... How do we do that? Look, it, it, it's real simple. It's, it's increased the, the guest worker program. It's 2023. We should have a system in place that if Texas needs more hospitality workers or uh, Massachusetts needs bus drivers for schools or California needs tech workers and Americans aren't applying for them, we should be able to say, hey, here are the number of visas that are available. Um, that's something that's going to require... Uh, th there's, there's most um, um, Republican primary voters and Democratic primary voters are supportive of this, but unfortunately both parties love to use this issue as a political bludgeon. You've been called a moderate, um, which many know can be a, a bad word in the Republican Party. It seems like this could be an uphill battle. I mean, you, you said yourself, you recognize that you're the dark horse. Mm -hmm. This could be an uphill battle uh, in getting to that debate stage mm -hmm. and really getting the nomination. So why run? Did you see, is there a gap that you saw in the current climate that you said, I need to fill that gap? Why, why run now? Two-thirds of Americans do not want Donald Trump or Joe Biden to be our two nominees. Two-thirds of Americans want something different. Seventy percent of the country thinks we're on the wrong track. And, and here's what I've learned uh, representing a 50-50 district when I was in Texas. Fifty percent Republican, fifty percent Democrat. Regardless of whether if I was in a, a ruby red town or a deep blue city, 
people talked about the same things. They wanted to be able to put food on the table, a roof over their head, and make sure that people that they love are healthy, happy, and safe. And I also learned that way more unites us than divides us as a country, and that we're better when we're together. And so this is, this is the lane, or this is what has been missing in our discourse, and why so many people don't vote in primaries. Only 23% of Americans vote in primaries, and you can split that right down the middle. So yeah, there was a gap. And, and the thesis is to attract those people that want something different. They want someone who's not afraid to criticize uh, Donald Trump, but who's articulating that vision and who's offering common sense in these complicated times. Okay, Will Hurd, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. One requirement for Republican candidates to make the debate is to reach 1% support in three national polls. Will Hurd hit that 1% threshold in a poll released Wednesday by Quinnipiac University, but the leader by far is Donald Trump. The poll shows the former president with 57% support from Republican voters. Ron DeSantis has 18%. No other candidate tops 5%. Texas law will soon require school districts to have an armed officer on every campus, but lawmakers did not include enough money to pay those officers. What districts are doing now to meet the new safety requirements? A new state law requires schools to have an armed officer on every campus. It takes effect September 1st, but districts across Texas are struggling to come up with money and staff to comply with the law. Investigator Kelly Wiley spoke with school leaders about the uphill battle to make campuses safer. More than a year after a mass shooting took the lives of 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, the ripple effect of new requirements is hitting schools statewide. September 1st, districts will have to place at least one armed officer on every campus. What's the cost associated with getting an armed security officer on every campus right now? Um, it is costly, there's no doubt about it. Um, it is going to um, definitely stretch us as a district financially. Lawmakers originally proposed increasing the student safety allotment by more than $90 per student. But in the end, they only increased the allotment by 28 cents. Were you shocked that they didn't allocate more state dollars? I'd say myself and every educator and probably every law oh, enforcement yeah. officer are all shocked. Dr. Tony Hicks is the superintendent of Gerald ISD a small district 45 minutes north of Austin. So excited our teachers are coming back. The district says this school year it's paying for armed security guards while building its own police department. Dr. Hicks says the district is already outspending the money allocated by the legislature. The safety of our children should not be extra. It should be funded. New data from the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement shows after the mass shooting at Robb Elementary, 15 school districts started participating in the school marshal program. That program trained school employees to protect students from armed intruders. That same data shows more than 50 school districts applied to start their own police departments after that shooting. It costs probably uh, somewhere around $100,000 per officer just to get them, you know, get them equipped, get them trained, you know, and put them on, on a campus. Uh, about $100,000. So it's cost a lot of money. The state, state really needs to um, help out with those costs. 
In our South at Hayes CISD, Head of District Safety Jerry Scrocky says she's also struggling to find the money and personnel for an officer on 15 elementary campuses, currently without a dedicated sheriff's deputy monitoring the campus. We actually had, had funded um, three positions that um, we put on the last school year. Unfortunately, due to staffing shortages, the sheriff's office wasn't even allowed or wasn't allowed, wasn't able to staff two of those positions the entire school year because they were so shorthanded. Other school districts in Hayes County tell us they're vying for more school resource officers from the sheriff's office to comply with the law. Um, I think every one of us who are in the safety and security department will tell you that we're very apprehensive. We're very, um, I don't even know how to put it into words. Um, we're, we're struggling because all of us want to do what we're instructed and mandated to do, but we also want to do it right. A gun in the school is not just the solution, it's a properly trained person with a gun in a school. Kelly Wiley, State of Texas. Districts can claim a good cause exemption if they don't have the money to put an officer on every campus, but they must develop an alternative plan. If the state finds the plan insufficient, districts could face some sort of state intervention, according to the legislation. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Josh Hinkle. We'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.